This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello there, I'm Emma Jane Purcell and welcome back to Fail Harder, the podcast that chats to people at the top of their game about failure, from their first memory of failure to how they cope with it now. On the podcast this week, I'm joined by the incredible Brian Penny. Everyone has their own journey into addiction and it's getting to the root of the pain, getting underneath the bonnet and finding out what's causing it. That's where the key lies. And for me, I've mastered my anxiety, which was the core of my issue. And that's why I don't have an Mm. issue with addiction anymore. After 15 years of chronic heroin addiction, which was so bad he was deemed too much of a risk to detox, he has completely turned his life around. He is now a neuroscience lecturer, motivational speaker, life change strategist and a PhD student. He is also the author of Bonus Time, a book where he tells his story of surviving the worst and discovering the magic of every day. But Brian is not here to talk about success. He's here to talk about failure. So hello, Brian. Hey, Emma, how are you? I'm very good. You're very welcome to Fail Harder. Delighted to be here. Really excited for this topic and this podcast. And here we've had great banter for the first five minutes. I could have talked about it. It's going well. It's going well. It's going well. (laughs) No, I am so delighted to have you on because I feel at the moment like you're sort of a failure expert a failure expert, a failure expert. Is, that, is that a compliment it's a compliment it's a compliment know, on this podcast but you know what if you haven't reframed failure and someone says you're a failure expert you wouldn't most people wouldn't take that in a good way to me that's a massive compliment so well that's what i mean but you yeah like, yeah sorry i should just say that i'm a bit sick today if i sound a bit you know croaky but um you I mean you've changed your whole life now you speak so openly about failure and how to use failure and how to like really kind of get into it and change it so that's why I'm yeah buzzed to have you on and I've listened to your book I listened to it audiobook wise the guy who's reading it is unbelievable I don't know if you've ever met him I've never met him he's an Irish actor and I was a bit apprehensive now here's here's a failure for you the first failure a recent failure Mm -hmm. so they asked me to give a it was an Australian company and they asked me to give a voiceover to do the book so we get him the voiceover and he just says, no, we need to get an actor. Your voice just won't work. <laughs> he says, okay, fair Sound. enough. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have another story we might get into later around accents and voices and stuff. Another epic failure back in Belgium many years ago. But um, when I heard his voice, I was like, yes, yeah, sound. He'd done a great job. He was he was uh, emotionally invested as well on a personal level, which was great. Yeah, it was like it was an emotional roller coaster. I listened to it and my boyfriend who I live with was listening to it as well. And you don't leave anything out in it. It is, I, I get the feeling anyways, you just, yeah, like you've just bared yeah. all in it, which is, you know, you can just feel it, you know, when you're listening to it and it's just, it is incredible. So, you know, thank you. well done. It must have been, thank you. it must have been a tough thing to, to put out there. Were you, were you nervous being so it, vulnerable? It was, it was, and, it, and it's an interesting, it's another recent failure, if you, if you want to call it that. And, when I got clean, I, I was six years, five years clean when I started writing that book. And 
I, I've been living a great life. I've been very happy. I had this perspective shift when I got clean and uh, I was flying in life, absolutely flying. But I hadn't fully embraced my emotions, my feminine side, I suppose, more feminine qualities, you could say. And I didn't actually feel the pain that I'd caused other people. So when I wrote that book and I was chatting to my mom and my sister and my brothers about different aspects of it, the emotions that came up in them was just like a thump in the chest for me. Mm. Now, again, it was like a failure of me not being able to get in touch with my emotions. And uh, but when I when I wrote the book, it was just so hard. Like it, it, it knocked me for six. It really did on an emotional level. But again, it was another great learning through failure in life. And uh, I, I have much better relationships with my family on, on the back of that book. I really mm, have. Yeah, and I presume you've got so many people reaching out to you about it since you've since you put it out there. Yeah, yeah, I do get a lot. The fun, the funny thing is, right? So I don't, I don't really believe in the word addiction, right? We need, we need a word to communicate. I don't believe in bloody depression and anxiety and all these things as well. They're just words we use to describe certain symptoms or behaviors that we can uh, communicate with with other people. But at the end of the day, addiction is just uh, you are taking something to avoid something else. It's an avoidance mechanism, mm. and most people have struggled with anxiety, trauma, or some other kind of some other trauma in their life, and that's why they take the drugs to get away from that. That's the majority of the time and a lot of people reach out to me thinking I have the solution to addiction where I can help their brother in an email or something like that I'm like mm. I couldn't even help my own brother who was still in addiction when I got clean so it's really challenging from that perspective that I haven't got the answers but I can point them in the right direction and I can certainly give loved ones the help the advice that I would have given my own family when I was in addiction and I would have been get the hell away from them that's that's the honest to God truth because there's mm-hmm. nothing you can do to change someone in addiction but you can give them a little bit of a nudge, but I, I try to help as much as I can, but it is tough. It's tough, I have yeah. to say, because there is no solution because but what I'm saying about the trauma, everyone has their own journey into addiction and it's getting to the root of the pain, getting underneath the bonnet and finding out what's causing it. That's where the key lies. And for me, I've mastered my anxiety, which was the core of my issue. And that's why I don't have an mm. issue with addiction anymore. And getting under the problem is the hardest bit in the first yes. place for, oh, for anybody. Yes, mm-hmm. it is indeed. It is indeed, yeah. So let me just explain the format of the podcast before Lovely. we begin. So I have don't 20 questions this. in front of me, numbered at random. Most are straightforward. However, some are a little bit unconventional and in the spirit of failure and trying to assert control over what life throws at us. You can Lovely. pick the numbers. Ooh, so any number Lovely. between one and 20. Seven came to mind for some reason. Must be something to do with lucky, lucky number seven. Seven and eight. It could be a Liverpool thing. I was a big Steven Gerrard fan. <laughs> okay, question number seven. What was your biggest lockdown failure? Oh, that's a great question because I have had I had two massive lockdown failures. Even though lockdown was one of the biggest successes of my personal life. So on the twenty, in line, we're talking about the book on the 29th of March, twenty twenty. That was the launch day of my book. I was due to go on the Ryan Turbity show on the Late Late Show as part of the book launch. I was due to go on another couple of TV shows, the Elaine Show, TV3, Ireland AM, loads of radio shows all lined up. And in the week building up to that, or week 10 days building up to that, I got a phone call. Uh, unfortunately, the Late Late Show, they're going to be focusing on other things with COVID. It's looking really serious because we didn't know how bad it was back then. It's looking yeah. really serious. We're going to have that. They're going to pull out. And I said, right, that's crap. I really was, I was excited about doing that. And I'd visualized for years about going on the Late Late Show. And yeah, it's, a, it's such an message. Irish yeah. person. Like, yeah, is it? it? Yeah. Like, 
That's it. I'm, I'm moving out of the generous it. now for some reason. So I'm like, forget about that now. I'm, I'm being very, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just being, I'm having a little tantrum still about that. So yeah, get away. I'm, I want to go out to America. But um, yeah, no, I'm only joking. But um, yeah, that, that was a big part of that for me. And then, but then what happened after that, I got a phone call the same evening. And Gil, the book publisher, saying, look, Brian, it's looking really bad lockdown. All of the TV shows are pulling out. They're not talking about books. They're really focusing on COVID-19. It's looking like it's going to be bad, bad, bad. And it felt crap. Viscerally in my body, it felt crap. I says, here, mm-hmm. I live on bonus time. That's the name of the book. This is part of life. I control what I can control. And that's my response to the situation. So I just took it as it came, even though I was horny. Then the next day I got a phone call and it says, Bernard, look, the bookshops are all closing. It says, it looks like we're not going to be able to sell your book in the bookshops. And 93% of Irish books get sold in bookshops. It's not online. Mm-hmm. But he says, look, there's a silver lining. Um, and maybe because everyone's going to lockdown, looks like we're on to lockdown now. Maybe everyone's going to be reading books and they can buy it online. And it's going to be great. Then I got the final call. Brian, we're really, really sorry. It's the worst time in ever for anyone having a book. But all the books are trapped in the warehouse and we can't even get them to Easton's to be oh, able to sell them Jesus. on the line. Yeah, I know. So I remember it, it, it just felt crap in that moment. But I remember all of a sudden I was just like looking out the window and I was like smiling. And I wasn't smiling at the failure, the epic failure of the book launch being an absolute disaster. Um, I was smiling at my ability to focus on what I could control. And that was my response to the situation. And I had another mishap in lockdown as well. So I was in the final year and a half of my PhD. And my primary study was a mindfulness intervention in the Rutland Centre. And we put in two years of work into this, bringing people through the waves of mindfulness interventions, eight-week interventions, phenomenal amount of work. And we had another 30 participants to go. And we needed that for sufficient statistical power. It's part of the research game. And basically COVID knocked that on its head because what happened was if we, we wouldn't have been able to do it anyway, because we still wouldn't be able to do those mindfulness interventions. But even if we could, we would be only measuring baseline. We wouldn't be measuring baseline anxiety. We'd be measuring COVID level anxiety and there's no comparison. So basically ruined the, the essence of my PhD. So my PhD was in the tubes. I was like, this is a complete failure. But again, I remember saying, what can I do about this situation? So building on past failures, failures, and, and how I've reframed failure as a step to, on the ladder to success. I turned, uh, I turned the book launch into one of my core talks. I began doing online talks and online courses, corporate talks. And I, I, it's like focusing on what you can control. So that was even better than the, the whole book thing. Mm. My, my ability to smile, to realize I'm living on bonus and I'm living my truth. That was just amazing. So I turned that on its head. And the PhD, I got over the line. It's a shame I couldn't get that study done, but we've done another online study and it worked out great in the end. PhD is in, not in the bag, thesis mm. in the bag. Mm. And I'll be defend, defending it in uh, in December. So yeah, they Thanks were the two Lord. epic failures, um, but it worked out for the best. And it's your attitude towards failure. That's the key. That's yeah, the key. That, that, like from listening to, um, you know, the, the videos and stuff that you do on Instagram and things like that, that, I find I'm so not there. And I don't think most people are. If that happened to me, if I had a book, I was about to go in the late, late show, all my study, you know, all of that kind of fell by the way. So I think I'd just be kicking and screaming for two weeks. Like, I think it's, in. I think it's so amazing how you can reframe that now so easily. And actually when I was listening to your book, 
the opening section you talk about you know being the happiest person that you know and that you don't overthink and you know I think you say you say something like that at the start and I was like yeah I'm jealous I'm jealous of him <laughs> but then you weren't jealous when you read after that no no definitely <laughs> yeah. not but like <laughs> that's what it was like but there was a few but that's I started off and it's only a paragraph and I say but there was a f- and that's it that's bonus time but there's a mm. few bumps in the road I had to get to first and uh yeah, it's it's funny. And I think one of the reasons why I'm at that spot, I think it is something to do with the shift in perspective I had. But there's this great line by a guy called Viktor Frankl, and it goes like this, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is your chance to choose your response and there lies your growth and your freedom. So the stimulus is usually something challenging that happens. It, it could be in your own mind, triggered mm-hmm. by your own mind, by a memory or something in the environment. For me, it was COVID, book launch being cancelled. So that's the stimulus. Your response could be me lying on the ground, crying in self-pity, wallowing in self-pity. That could have been the response. That would have been me many, many years ago. But there's a space there. And I think I work hard to increase that space. So when these things happen, I feel it viscerally in my body. I feel sorry for myself. I feel pity. Mm. But I catch that. I catch it. It's like, a, it's like an emotional hijack. And I try to catch that and then reframe it right there. And it's that moment, which is, it's hard to do. It takes practice to do that, but it's definitely been a bit, the biggest game changer for me in terms of my recovery and, and other aspects of life. And, you know, can you tell me a bit more about what you're studying? So neuroscience. So basically, um, so the neuroscience thing is funny. It's like I'm I'm based in the Institute of Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin. I teach the neuroscience of addiction in Trinity and I teach the neuroscience of mindfulness in UCD. But my PhD is actually in, it's, well, it changed. So what we were looking at, we were looking at the impact of mindfulness in terms of, the impact of mindfulness in terms of treating addiction. But because of the whole research study got uh, impacted by COVID, we looked at these other things. And what we were looking at, we were looking at this idea of emotion-driven impulsivity. So let's say some people, some people are, are negative emotions. They have negative emotions, stress, anxiety, and they say, oh, this is horrific. I can't cope with this. I'm going to have a drink. And they impulsively go for a glass of wine or go to the pub. And that could be a Monday, Tuesday day when they're feeling stressed, going to the pub. It's emotion-driven impulsivity, which is excuse me, which is a huge predictor of alcohol misuse. You're drinking to cope with negative emotions. Mm. Now, another element of emotion-driven impulsivity is positive emotion-driven impulsivity. Oh, I feel great. Let's go have a drink and enhance these emotions. It's like you're enhancing already their positive emotions. And it happens to more younger people and it can lead to alcohol misuse as well. But what we looked at there as well, we, we explored the, the impact of mindfulness in terms of mitigating and stopping the, the alcohol misuse and what we found was was these different differential emotional pathways to substance misuse so if people were basically uh, impulsively drinking on negative emotions or let sorry let's say they they had high uh, uh, ne- reactivity to negative emotions and they acted impulsively mm. well most of those people would drink alcohol but if they had high levels of acting with awareness and high levels of mindfulness, they'd still have the, 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 the want to cope and the negative emotions and the, the drive to be impulsive. But they wouldn't have the drink because they act with awareness. And that's been the big the big findings from the, from the research. Really, Wow, that's that's so interesting. And in terms of mindfulness, I know like me and a couple of other people, I know we've fallen in and out of kind of yeah. oh, I downloaded Headspace, did it for a while, fall out of it. What what would you kind of, to try and stay with it, like what would be, you know, have you any sort of advice on that to try and keep? Because yeah. it feels I, amazing when you do it and you, you're you feeling the benefits, but for some reason 
I don't know, I've fallen in and out with the habit of it, like a lot. Yeah, I've some great tactics for that. I really do. And I, I think one of the core things, and what I was talking about there a while ago, like increasing the space between stimulus and response, I think increasing that space is one of the fruits of mindfulness. The more you practice mindfulness, you're catching yourself. Like my, people think that mindfulness is basically sitting all zen for 20 minutes in a room and then walking out into the world. So I know some people that do that and then they fight with the traffic. Like, what is the point of that? <laughs> they get hijacked all over the place by their emotions and their emotional wreck. Yeah, so yeah. what's the point of that? Like it, it needs to work in the real world. And I think the essence of mindfulness and the research shows this, that you actually catch yourself in unawareness. So if you are doing a five minute mindfulness exercise and you catch your mind wandering 10 times, which happens, doesn't mean you're bad at mindfulness. That just means you're human because that's Mm. what we do. But if you bring that back 10 times, you are practicing catching yourself in unawareness. You are practicing catching yourself increasing the space between the stimulus and the response the stimulus happens you go you go into autopilot you get emotionally reactive but if you practice mindfulness all of a sudden you catch that and there's a space and then you can react in a rational manner now what i would say to people is because it is difficult with our busy lives to implement this into your life but one of the things i say and i think it works really really well is this idea of micro meditations and habit stacking so habit stacking is an idea from james clear he wrote that book atomic habits fantastic book and he really he, he stole this idea and steal the idea he reframed this idea from associative learning from psychology behavioral psychology and it's just creating a relationship or an association between two things so he calls it habit stacking so you stack in a new habit onto an existing habit. So what I done when I heard about this was, right, so I don't brush my teeth anymore. I mindfully brush my teeth. Mm-hmm. Brushing my teeth was the existing habit. The new habit was mindfulness. So every time now, because I've done that and I've created that association, every time I brush my teeth, I'm mindfully brushing my teeth. I feel the bristles on my teeth. I listen to the noises. I listen to the water, feel the brush on my hands. And I just I go into that mindful moment. And again, I, uh, I go off wandering, the mind wanders, but I bring it back and I bring it back. But because I brush my teeth in the morning and the afternoon, that's like five, six minutes of mindfulness every single day. I've stacked mm. that habit. And you can do that with micro meditations as well. If you put cream in your face in the morning and the night or in the nighttime every night, these repetitive behaviors, that's why brushing your teeth is great. So if you put cream in your face every day, do it mindfully. We're all washing our hands more than we ever have because of COVID. Do it mindfully. Focus on the sensory perceptions, the running water, the water feel, the touch of the water in your hands. And your first cup of coffee or cup of tea in the morning, eating a piece of chocolate, do it mindfully. Walking up and down the stairs, do it mindfully. And create these little micro meditations, but create an association between the act you're going to repetitively do and mindfully acting out that as well. And it's just a great way to bring that into real world things and the research shows that um the 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 amount of mindfulness exercise is nearly better than duration so if you have loads of these little mini meditations throughout your life micro meditations throughout your day it's really really beneficial and really bring that awareness into your life that's great that's really helpful i'm gonna gonna implement that now starting starting brilliant (laughs) should we move on to the next number what number would you like yeah let's go number eight they were the first two numbers i I, I went for so okay has anybody you loved ever really failed you? Right. That's a really interesting question. And my first, my my first thought went straight to my parents, but they didn't fail me. I, I don't think, I don't think anyone really fails you. I think everyone does the best job that they can with the tools that they're given. Mm. Now, I could say that my parents failed me because they were alcoholics when I was a young child. We were both uh, uh, drinking, but they were very loving parents. 
they were just weren't, they weren't very affectionate either. And there are two bad things I'm saying about my parents. It sounds horrific. They weren't affectionate and they were alcoholics. But they done a phenomenal job with the tools they were given. My mom just, we always felt loved and we always felt that we always had somewhere to go. My, I had my own fear, some childhood trauma around that. So my first thought comes to that, but I don't think they failed me. And I don't really think anybody fails you. It's again, it's your, what's your reaction to the, to, to, to the situation? And as a kid, it can be a little bit different because you can be failed. People do have responsibilities. So mm. to an extent, they may have failed me in terms of, uh, they may have failed me in terms of parenting. They didn't give me, the, the affection I needed as a kid and it gave me the space to speak about my emotions not that I would have anyway I think that's one of my biggest my greatest failures maybe but um, they done a phenomenal job with the tools they were given better than that so they didn't fail they exceeded expectations in my mm-hmm. opinion and I have no resentment I, I have a great relationship with my parents today but there is one person that does jump the mind and his name is Mr. Olunik he was a teacher we had in St. Declan's College in Dublin and um, I remember every all the students hung on his every word. We just hung. He just had this great yeah. way about him. I don't know what it was. And all the teachers hung on, every, on his every word. And he loved some of the students and sort of made it known that he didn't like some of the other students. And he had all these values that he used to talk about. Like, you should never elbow someone in the back. It's very dangerous. And you should never do this. And he, the right things. But I always remember he sort of, his star pupils were the people that sort of done all of these things behind his back, but that were real nice to him. Mm. And I remember he called me out one day and he says, see you, Mr. Penny. He says, because I was, pr- I was smart enough in school. I was good in school. I was, in, I was in the class. I was one of the better ones in the class, I suppose. And he turns around and he says, you have 10 times the brains of most people in this class, but they have 10 times the character than you have. And that stuck with me so much and it turned out not only was he wrong about those people because I could see that they didn't have empty great people but they didn't have what he thought he had he was just mm. misguided in his own interpretation but he turns out to be a child molester and died in jail as a child molester so yeah crazy Jesus. story crazy situation but when I heard that I sort of made me feel not that I was glad he was he was horrific but I was saying, right, at least because I, I hung on his words. And for him, he must have realized that to an extent as well. And for me to actually remember that is a crazy thing. And I've talked to other people in the past. It was something that a teacher said and stuck with them and had an impact on their lives. But I used to question my own character on the back of that. So I think him as a teacher definitely failed me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, thought yeah. it was really, I thought it was really interesting what you were saying as well, you know, about your parents and stuff and that kind of, I was just thinking about in bonus time, um, it definitely struck me reading that or listening to that book that you don't going through the book, you don't blame anybody. Like you all, it always comes back to you. Everything. Yeah. It's, it's, you know what? It's really interesting. No one's ever said that to me about the book, but one of the things, as you, you know, you read the book. So what's something I done in 2017, I wanted to learn from people further along the path, like failing's great. Well, here let's learn from other people so we don't have to fail as much and we get there quicker so i reached out to loads of people loads of business leaders like amy huberman i got an interview with amy huberman darrow mm. green some amazing people but many business leaders in ireland as well like ceos of the biggest companies and one of the things i, I was very sort of very sort of I, I got lucky in how i got contacted with this but looking back in the email i sent them all i was sort of very clever in, in a retrospective way but mm. i got emails and some of them are, are my, my mentors today they give me advice today like it's fantastic 
But I remember one of them in particular, Bernard Bourne, he was the CEO of AIB at the time. He's actually the CEO, CEO of Davy Group. And he just says, talking to me in an interview, he says, you just have this cr- incredible accountability. You take you take full responsibility for everything that has happened to you. You don't blame anyone else. And if I think of what is the opposite of resentment and, and resentment and blame and all of these kinds of things, uh, I don't know if it's like directly opposes it or directly opposite of it, but gratitude. And for me, gratitude is just like a uh, bonus time is I was given a second chance at life. I'm living on bonus time. That's where I got the name of the book. So I'm so grateful for the second chance at life. So there's no room to be resentful and blame other people and moan. So I think gratitude, being grateful for what I have, has mm. helped me to have that mindset and not blame other people. But I don't have a resentful bone in my body. And I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful for not yeah. having a resentful, resentful bone. Yeah, mm. I just got lucky, I think. Yeah. And the name bonus time, yeah, it really kind of kicks in when you are, when you're going through the book, because you do. I mean, I'm sure people have said it to you before. You know, you're like, how, how did he make it through this? How is he alive? Yeah. You know, and then yeah, it yeah. is like, and now you're like, okay. <laughs> You're, you're in the dark now if you want to turn on the light. <laughs> I know. Will I turn the light? Like, give me a second. I'm looking at that. It's a bit crazy. <laughs> oh, great. We can see again. <laughs> there we go. And I was going to walk over. Here, do you know what I was saying to myself there? I was saying, how can I put the mic on the laptop, unplug it, walk over to the light and walk back again? We're here. It's great to have a break like this, you know, people get yeah, yeah, yeah. out of that, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> that was okay. getting a bit weird, actually. It was getting darker and darker and darker. <laughs> Brilliant. Tell me, are you still looking for something worth dying for? Oh, kid. I left all that behind me. These days, I'm much happier as the humble owner of this down-to-earth and incredibly exclusive nightclub. Mick turns his head away and stares pensively. Dancing hot sex man, adventure romance. He will kick several Nazis and get in your pants. Listen to the Bootsy Boys Blackbird on the Headstuff Podcast Network. <laughs> right, what number would you like next? Right, number nine. Why am I going with seven, eight, yeah, nine? It's very, un- very unlikely. But we're getting none of the, the fun ones. But anyways, what failure do you fear the most? Ooh, what failure do I feel the most? Do you fear the Ooh. most? I fear, fear the most, sorry. I'm getting better at this and I only had... I would say my greatest failure, and I hope this isn't a question that's going to come up, my greatest failure has been an inability to face my own emotions and to acknowledge my emotions and speak mm. to other people about my emotions. Now, that started as a kid. I remember I mentioned my mom and dad, and they weren't aware that I was struggling with anxiety. I, I was really good at keeping it in, and I never told anyone about it because I think I seen it as a weakness. So it's sort of like letting go of my feminine side. It, I, and I don't mean that in, in a woman versus man way. I suppose they're just traits that are correlated, like empathy, like compassion, like sharing feelings, intuition, creativity, mm. all these sort of feminine traits, but just start to share in your emotions is, is, is a more feminine thing. And I'm not really good at that. And, and that, that sort of being in uh, as an early, early, in early childhood that developed in, in that way. And then when I was in addiction for years, I just smothered it with drugs. That's what I did. Mm. And as much as I try these days, and I'm always trying, I'd say it's still a, a, a continuing failure of mine is to speak up and be vulnerable. I can be vulnerable. I can be very, very vulnerable in certain situations. 
But when it comes to family and loved ones in certain situations, I find it hard to be vulnerable. Mm. So it's really crazy. It's like when I'm up on stage, like I was very, you could say I was very vulnerable last week when I was in, in front of a thousand people in the National Concert Hall. But that's practice vulnerability. That's me going up and sharing my story, talking about my book. I've done all of that before. But when it comes to in the moment vulnerability and emotions, it's a little bit harder. But I done it the other day. I was on a talk with a group of addiction students in from Sligo University the other day. And I was talking about my young brother, James. So he was in addiction himself when I got clean and he was really, he had a terrible stammer. He had really bad stammer, like couldn't speak like at all. He had low confidence, ended up as a drug addict into, into drugs. And two and a half years ago, he finally seen the light. He got, he got clean. And But James is a lovely, sensitive soul. And all he ever wanted to do was meet the woman of his dreams and have a family where mm. stammer held him back and he could never get there. <laughs> But only there recently, uh, Friday, not Friday, gone the Friday before that, he got married to the woman of his dreams on ah. international, international Stammering Day, as a coincidence, and stood up in front of everyone and spoke his vows because he'd worked on that, and it was absolutely phenomenal. Amazing. I'm not getting emotional now, but wow, did I get emotional talking mm. about that the other day. And I remember saying, I'm getting emotional now, but I said, I'm going to own this, I'm going to embrace that. And that was a big step for me. So that, that's a step just only the other day that I yeah. took. But it's still a huge challenge for me. Still a huge it's, challenge it's for me. Interesting that you say just kind of, you know, the feminine thing, because my my dad, he he's a counsellor now. So he ran the like local shop in my village for years and then retrained as a counsellor in recent years right. when he retired. Um, yeah. And he was speaking about that recently. And I didn't know, you know, he was like women. Like He was like, if you go into a coffee shop, He's like, you'll see loads of groups of women having coffee, sitting there, having chats. He was like, how many groups of men do you see sitting there talking yeah. about their lives? And I was like, really, is that true? He was, like, he was like, really, I think that there is. Now, obviously, it's not a whole blanket yeah, rule. It's generalized, but, it's, just, but it's, it's a good generalization, I, I'd say. Yeah, that like men just gen- find it harder to yeah. talk, to be vulnerable, you know, with other people. Is You know, it, would you agree? Like, is that a thing? Definitely. And I, I think there's something when you think of the feminine and the masculine, I think the feminine is more being, it's more just being creative, flowy, emotion, passion, all these different things. And I'm generalizing the bits here. Obviously, yeah, like yeah, that of course. Well. Yeah. But when it comes to the masculine, it's like doing, it's the more doing thing, risk taking, doing, getting stuff done and mm. the competitive productivity and all of these different things. And I think that's one of the biggest differentiations between that. And if you think of people sharing their stories in coffee shops, it's like they're having a laugh, they're being playful, they're talking about events and they're doing that. But all the men are out there doing, they're all doing this, that and the other. Mm -hmm. And then for the ones that are left that I feel like um, not man enough, which is an idea I had in my head for a long time in addiction. Well, I wasn't going to go and chat to other men. I wanted to be on my own because I didn't want to share how crap I thought I was about myself. So. It's a funny little thing. I'm sure it's more nuanced than that, but it makes a lot of sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you find that, like, all the work you've done now, which obviously a huge amount in all your study, that, like, you'd still kind of get into old habits of like that, or do you feel like you've really kind of broken through, you know, those barriers? No, do, do you know what I visualised there? It's really strange. I, I wouldn't be the most visual person in the world, but I had this visualisation of, like, a Jenga board kind of thing, all these squares, um, like chess, or like, like squares sort of on a floor. And it's like some of them have dropped really deep, but some of them are really stuck, jammed up there. So mm. it's like some elements of my life, I have really made a big breakthrough. Like I've broken through that area, but some areas are just stuck. And I think one of the areas that are stuck is like sharing emotions and stuff like that. I'm definitely getting there. But it's, 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 it's funny it is. 
I, I, I think, right, no, I, I think I'll reframe that question a little bit, that answer a little bit differently. I do think I've made a, a massive breakthrough and I do think there's elements of my life where I just cannot go backwards. Mm. I think, I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen scans of my brain before and after addiction between six years. Like, so I changed the structure of my brain. Mm. That's neuroplasticity through certain habits. And it's like, if you roll a snowball downhill, and I think this is why consistency is so important. The consistency and failure, reframe failure, they're two of my biggest, the biggest things in my life, the biggest topics that I talk about and practice in my life. And consistency is so crucial because if you're consistent in your actions, you're creating these habits, you're changing your brain it physically, functionally, in every single way. And it's like a snowball rolling down a hill and it builds up more snow and it builds up this incredible momentum. And it's very hard to stop that momentum. When you're going the opposite direction, it's hard to stop that momentum too. Mm. But when you build momentum into the other way, it's even called a Matthew effect. It's biblical. It's from them. Matthew is one of the apostles, saint. I don't know whether they're saint. I'm not religious. But it's, it's, an, <laughs> a, a, a pop, a, a, it's, it's a biblical kind of thing called a Matthew effect. Whereas the, the weak get weaker, the stronger, stronger, the more beautiful people get all the, the good stuff handed over to them. It's like, it's not very fair, but it's like when you get good stuff in your life, more good stuff comes. It's like good stuff breeds more good stuff. Yeah. And I do think habits and biology does work that way as well. And all these different habits that you do, but then there can be big shifts. Like I, I, I did a fantastic uh, morning routine and I was on a roll all the time with that. And I have a morning routine course. But I, I, I met my partner, my amazing partner. And when I moved in with her recently, it really threw me for six mm. in terms of uh, my morning routine and stuff. And I really had to work hard to get that back. So big contextual shifts can change that, can really throw you for six. But it's 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 interesting. It's, 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 a, it's a something I need to think about and talk about a little bit differently. But it's, yeah. it's, it's mm. it, yeah. I'll leave it at that because I'm rambling. No, no, it's interesting. I actually just thought, I had a thought, I'd listened to you. I wanted to ask you this. I should move on to the next question in a minute. But um, (laughs) you talked about um, on one of your videos, I think on Instagram recently, about um, making feelings-based decisions versus... That's a um, monster. Values-based. Values-based decisions. That is actually, that was really interesting to me. Just kind of, I feel like I definitely live my life, you know, I'd say good 80% on feelings based decisions. You're talking yeah. about, oh, you know, you should get up at this time, but like yeah. you're a bit tired, you stay and then it wrecks your morning. I mean, it, I just thought that was really interesting. I was like, I've never heard of that before, but it's yeah. almost something that I do and I need to change. And it's so important. And just to let listeners know that as well, we're not talking about intuition and good feelings. Like you need to go and have that difficult conversation. You, mm. you follow that, you follow that good feeling. But it's like, if I don't, if, what, what's your values? What do you value? I'll give an example for me. I value my physical health, my mental health. I value family connection and my relationships. They're very tangible values. Other more arbitrary values, I suppose, like honesty, trust, loyalty, courage, more personal values to me is like boldness, playfulness, curiosity, their core values of mine as well. And I try to align my life and my actions and my decisions with those values. So if I wake up in the morning and industry is another one as well, I like to get stuff done and be industrious as well, as well as having downtime. It's getting the balance. Balance is another bloody, so many mm. values. Balance <laughs> is another value. And these, it's just having a values-based system so you know what direction and how to make decisions in life. So when I wake up in the morning and I want to hit the snooze button, I feel tired or I feel like a, like the, the limbic brain, the, 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 the more uh, the younger brain wants to just have fun and go to sleep and all these different things and, and not do the hardest thing. Mm. So it will want to hit the snooze button. Again, if I go to the fridge and I look in the fridge, I value my physical health. 
what do I want? My limbic brain is saying, eat the donut, eat the donut, eat the sugar, eat the sugar, because the dopamine is craving that. But yeah. I'm like, no, don't make a feelings-based decision. Make mm. a values-based decision. Take the healthy field. If I come back home and I, from work and I need to have a workout, I plan to have a workout, but my brain wants to sit down and watch Netflix, I feel, I know what I feel like I want to do, watch Netflix and binge on junk field, but I make a values-based decision because it's based on what I value, my physical health. And when you make values-based decisions over feelings-based decisions, it's an absolute game changer. Mm. It really, really is. Yeah. yeah, that was really cool. Okay, let's move on to the next question because I <laughs> I always I never get through many of these anyway. Yeah. Do you want to pick one of the funny ones? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, let's do, do it actually. Yeah. Right, yeah, okay. right, right. Okay, right. how many American states start with the letter M? Oh, Minnesota. <laughs> Oh, no, I don't have to name them. I just have to account. Well, you can them? name them to help you if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Minnesota, mm-hmm. Maine. Yeah. I'm surprised I got two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very impressed with myself. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <probably> <laughs> <10. Really close. laughs> Minnesota, Maine. I'd say they're tough ones as well. Yeah. Minnesota, Maine. I nearly said Mayo. <laughs> well, not Mayo. Uh, the Mayo Clinic. That is in America. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Uh, the, 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 the I'll give you a clue. There's the one, you know, the one that people use. They Milwaukee. Spell. Uh, uh, Mississippi. No. Yes. Mississippi. I'm trying to go around. No, I'm doing it. Well, you failed. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> How many is there? Come on, Michigan, Maryland, Montana, Missouri, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Mississippi, and Maine. But you did get three, so that is actually pretty good. Three. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not yeah. enough with that. Me, me world, me American geography is not great. Me world geography is a little bit better. Yeah, I don't know, I honestly, yeah, I, was good. I, I was good. I was good. Cheers, cheers, cheers. <laughs> right. Okay. Next number. Number thirteen. Okay. What is your earliest memory of failure? Ooh, and this links back to this links back to not facing my emotions. So it would definitely be when I was a kid, I really should have gone and spoke to my parents and told them I was tormented by my mind. I was worried about them drinking because they loved me and they would have done something about it. Well, they would have done something to their best of their ability. Mm-hmm. They were obviously drinking with their own struggles and stuff that was going on, but they would have done something, it would have changed something. So my earliest memory of affair, and I did I didn't recognize that at the time. Obviously I didn't recognize that at the time, but that would definitely be my earliest memory. Um, another one, a, a really big failure of mine um, would have been, it was the, I, I think I was probably going to go around down the direction I was going to go in anyway, but it was the catalyst for my whole addiction. I, like people always say, what's the gateway drug? Yeah. Marijuana is the gateway drug, blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. I don't think there is a gateway drug. I think you're going to do it. You're going to do it. You might just pick a drug. People have an aha moment where they might say, ah, well, I do coke, but uh-oh, I wouldn't do heroin. Or I do is, but I wouldn't do coke. They have these uh-oh moments. Oh, I totally. Didn't seem to have, yeah. yeah, I didn't seem to have that but in the early days I was obsessed with football I was hoping to make it as a professional footballer probably wasn't good enough but I was handy enough um, and I was good in school I high hopes for myself I really did even though I was crippled with anxiety and stuff like that as well but I remember I got injured as a kid and I, I always said I'll never smoke while my mates were 14 years of age were all smoking cigarettes and I was saying that's filthy I was like I so I'm not uh, like it wouldn't be a rat like that was the thing you can't rat in your friends. But I was saying, oh, you, like I was so like you should. I tell you, man, like not not a rat because I says because that's just stupid. He's like yeah, being mad. stupid, like putting dirty smoke into your lungs. He is mad, like you know what I mean. Mm. And I remember I was injured. Uh, I was out for a couple of months with with an injury with football, and we were up on the football dressing rooms. Ironically enough, when my friend Alan turned around and says, "Oh, deadly head buzz off this," and 
looking back, I must have been getting interested in the head buzz things. That's around the mm. age when kids get interested in drugs and stuff like that. And I said, head buzz? So let's try that. So I'm not, no, I'm not smoking to smoke because that's filthy, but I like head buzz. Gives it gives a little taste of that and see what that's like. And I remember just having the first puff of me smoke, or first puff of cigarette. It was a big Samson roll-up. And I was taking a puff of it. And it was just like gave me this lovely little high. And I just loved it. I mm. loved it. And that was the catalyst for me. I was smoking hash soon after that, taking all kinds of drugs soon after that because I sort of soothed the pain that of the anxiety that I felt. And before I knew it, a few years later, I was doing heroin and messing around with all sorts of things. But that was a big failure for me. That was one of my earliest failures where I said I'd never do it. And I was just weak-minded, I suppose, following the crowd. I never seen myself as a crowd follower. But that's what I did. I followed the crowd. And that's something that jumped out on me when you said that. Yeah, I mean, it's so for young people, I mean, it's so hard. Life when you're a teenager is, you know, you're trying to fit in and you're trying to, you know, you kind of want to be part of the crowd. It is quite hard to kind of stand out and say... You know, no. Say no. Yeah, mm. it's crazy. And we, we often blame Jim Morrison, a uh, gang of us, because Jim Morrison was like, we were obsessed with Jim Morrison. Uh, but he says, you have to try everything once. So mm. he says, right, we're going to do heroin just once. Yeah. <laughs> that was another failure. Famous last word. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was another failure. <laughs> do you have, um, I presume you do still have good friends who are, you know, still going through addiction. Are you still in contact with those people? That must be quite difficult. <laughs> Yeah, it's very hard. And um, I won't say names. Um, one, one of my best friends who I got, so, so there was sort of a couple of really, really close friends. And um, three of us, in, or four of us in particular, growing up. One of them has uh, done great for himself in life. Um, he's a director of a big pharma company now. He's my best mate now. We go skiing just the two of us every year. It's phenomenal. Like, just mm-hmm. great. He's just such a great human being. Like, such a... I talk about somebody carrying, carrying the feminine side of masculinity. This fella just has a nail. Like, he's just such a... He's just an incredible... He's a hero. He really is. You, you yeah. probably know what I'm talking about from the book. He's a different <laughs> name in the book, actually. The hide a few things. Yeah. We, we create an alter ego because he, he wasn't always a lovely, nice person. Yeah. So I had to create two different people. <laughs> So as people would know who he was as a kid. But um, so, yeah, we get on great now. But we two were our friends. One of them sort of got clean um, 10 years before I got clean. He was more into alcohol, serious alcohol addiction. But um, he's, yeah, we, I'm not too, he's, he's clean now. But we sort of we drifted and we just don't mm-hmm. really get on anymore. It's just different kind of lives. But my other mate here was my partner in crime. Barry is his name in the book my partner on crime we done heroin together for years and years and years and unfortunately he's still on the streets he's on the streets now at the moment i meet up every six months to a year or so we do you know even though like he's he's different now and we've changed so much and we could never be friends again in terms of doing we've changed changed so much like mm. he's been in prison for armed robbery and stuff like that and he's just he, he struggled so badly with his emotional world and all but when we get back together I and mean, there's just that banter that was there at the very start and we have the crack like it's great especially if he's not completely out of it and stuff like that and the last time he met up it was crazy um so what i was i i met uh, so I met Barry, we'll call him Barry. We met him in the Blanchestown Centre. We meet me in the Blanchestown Centre. So he's a bit of a drinker now as well. He had a heroin addiction. And mm. he says, I'm going to get a few cans of Drew. It's Glenn, right? So we were walking, because we didn't know where to go. It was COVID time. We are walking around the centre. So I'm standing outside the off-license in Duns at Blanchestown Centre. And he goes in there. And all of a sudden I see guards running, not guards, uh, security running everywhere. And they're looking at me, pike, pike me. I said, what's going on here? I have no idea. So then all of a sudden Barry strolls up and he says, oh, Ben, 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 come on, come on, come on, run now. So we'd gone in, robbed the, tried to rob a load of guards, <laughs> got caught, ran now, still got two cans of drills, glad in his yoke. So I nearly got arrested, right? And then the following, the following night, and we had great crack that night. It was such good fun that night. 
And then the following night, uh, Fergal Nocton, I was at Fergal Nocton, who is the C was the CEO of Glendale Blacks, worth 1.5 billion, the Nocton's like the mega amount of money. Wow. Fergal be like a mentor, I'd be a pal of mine now, like because one of the guys I reached out to. So mm. he invited me to have a chat with the provost of Trinity College Dublin in this big mansion in Trinity College Dublin. We're having a, a glass of expensive wine, and I says, the dichotomy of those two nights, one after wow. another, I nearly got arrested with me, mate, compared to sitting in a big mansion in number one, Tr- uh, Grafton Street or whatever it was. It was crazy. That, like it's, it's, crazy. it's sad, but it's also kind of a gas story. At it's time. sad and funny it is as well. Yeah. And mm. I, I really, it's it, it's it's difficult. It is. They were really the only friends. I started to live in delusion and addiction. I wasn't a real addict, so I didn't have many other yeah. addict friends. I had acquaintances. Although we got there in the end, but it's rough when I see people in addiction and I know how how hard it is to get out of addiction. Not even yeah. from my experience, just the statistics are horrifically bad. It's just very sad. It's just yeah, very sad. Yeah. yeah. I think we have time for one last question. Let's go. I'm loving this. <laughs> I, I kind of want to oh, ask you, I kind of want to ask, can I can I cheat and just ask you one that I want to ask you? Go, go, shoot. <laughs> Let's go with that. Let's go with that. <laughs> how do you measure your success? How do I measure my success? That is a really interesting one. What a success. So to measure something, you have to define something. Now the scientist has mm. coming on me now. Yeah, yeah so measuring something you have. <laughs> For me, right, one, one of one of one of a, a mantra that I live in my life is what gets measured gets managed. So if you want to manage something, you've got to measure it. Okay. Now I think to measure happiness, which for me, inner peace, fulfillment, that is the ultimate measure of success. If you're fulfilled, brushing leaves down the street and you're ultimately happy that is success like there's some very successful people in life that don't have any of the metrics of money and all these kinds of things mm. so for me the, 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 it is about happiness at the end of the day but then you could be and, and that, that's more of a feeling i think isn't it sort of more of a feeling it's an inner peace and a knowingness that you're happy it's the it's really the absence of pain maybe that's how you might measure success in terms of the ultimate success of fulfillment Ooh. is the absence of pain the absence of inner turmoil and stuff mm. like that but in terms of like, like for career whatever you want to call it people don't like talking about money and one of the biggest things when I start getting these mentors in life I was going to meet these mentors to interview them for tips mm. and they were asking me what I was doing you're interested in what I was doing and I'd say, Eddie said, what work are you doing? So I'm just going around little talks, not even interested in money. I don't want money. So I was Mr. Spirituality at this stage, just after yeah, coming yeah. out of addiction, reading all these books, <laughs> wanted to be a monk and all this. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, right, cop on, cop on fella. <laughs> you need money. We need money. And, yeah. and I had incredible lack of self-worth around money. So I can't charge people for money. And it was actually coming from a place of self-worth. I'm not, I wasn't valuing myself. Mm. Who am I from a disadvantaged area and a former heroin addict from Dublin to be asking people for money for doing talks. And I remember Bernard Bourne again says, you've got to be charging people for money. So Bernard brought me in to do a talk in AIB and he says, you ask for big money. I'm not going to talk about figures, but with really bloody good money. And he arranged me for a get a talk. That talk was one of my first big corporate talks, was really successful. I nailed it, even though I was nervous as hell. Mm. And I ended up getting nine other talks from all the different departments of the AIB in Dublin. And it was phenomenal. It was the start of my speaking career. And for me, we're saying, what's the measure of success? And what they said to me was, when you don't have to worry, like I remember another mentor of mine, Mick Slane, this founder of Rob, was an incredible human being. He's a great friend of mine now. Just a brilliant, brilliant person. I'm actually meeting him and Bernard for lunch on the 8th of December, as it happens. We're just happening to be talking to the two of them now, which is really interesting. But what, they, what he said to me was, 
imagine what it would be like for you if you didn't have to, if you had a mortgage or you didn't have a mortgage, you had a house, you didn't have to worry, you can go on holiday when you wanted, and you didn't have to worry about food, you had all those things and you could pay other people to do with the other tasks that's taking up your time. Yeah. How many more people would you be able to help to share your message? And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like, think of money like energy. So for me, another big metric of success is freedom. So money gives me the freedom. And I used to always say that if I had a couple of million in the bank or whatever the number would be, and I didn't have to worry about money, well, I would just be putting all of my time into finding the secret sauce that can help young people with their mental health. That's that's what I would love to do. So that's another metric of success, I mm. suppose, though. So it is difficult to measure success. And I think you do have to look into what it is in, in relationships, like uh, the relationships we have a success, I suppose, is the amount of love you feel, how cherished you feel, or yeah. how much you can give. There's so many when, when well, you, you think about it. You are a total success story. I mean, would you think that about you? Would you ever do you ever look at yourself now? Obviously, you've done the work and you've worked so hard to get yourself to where you are now. But do you ever like stop for a moment and say, Jesus, like I have like I'm a success. Look what I've done. Look oh, wow. what I've achieved. Look at look at who I, I've helped. You know what I mean? Helped. That's mad. No one's ever said that to me before. If, if someone asked me, I would say a, a transformation, a story of transformation rather than, than success. But there's something that I wanted to chat with you about today. So I was obsessed with the idea of failure and, mm. um, and success. What are they? What's failure? What's success? What are they? And I used to think failure is just a step on the ladder of success. So I love the etymology. I'm, I'm crazy about words or what's the meaning of words, which is etymology. And I looked in, what's the etymology of success? And it turns out it's, it's a difficult one to get into because lots of words have different meanings. But one yeah. of the ones that seemed to be the big one was that it, may, it comes from the Latin word subsidiary. It's S-U-C-C-E-D-D-R-E. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation. <laughs> so it, lo- it looks like subsidiary. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It's the Latin, Latin word for success. And what that means in Latin is to come after. That's the translation. Success means to come after. Oh, so wow. what does it come after? It comes after failure. That's my interpretation of it. So you are not successful. Name someone that's successful and they will have had failures and challenges on the way. And if you are not failing in life in any way, small way, you're not challenging yourself enough. You've got to challenge yourself even more. So the more you challenge yourself and the more you fail, the more notches on the ladder, the more higher you get on the ladder of success. So for me, it's really important to look at it from that perspective as well. I think that's important. I absolutely love that. And that's perfect note to end this on. This has been amazing. Like I really feel like I've learned so much, you know, just from chatting to you. Like it's been such a lovely hour, you know, that I've got to pick your brain. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. I love that. And you know what? Usually at the end of a podcast, it's like, uh, I'm sort of done, you know, it's the end of the podcast. But I, yeah. I actually, I could easily go over in a few hours answering yeah, yeah. all the questions. I'm actually just uh, full of energy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fail Harder. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you like the podcast, it would be so helpful if you could subscribe to it, rate and review it, share it on social media or with a friend. One or all of these things is so appreciated. Thank you. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.